And we're going to be looking at a number of different passages <clears throat> this evening. But I'd like us to turn, uh, just to begin with, again to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this is, again, the, um, the passage in which we see uh, the, the Davidic covenant given by God uh, through the prophet Nathan uh, to David. And again, it's important for us to recognize uh, the significance of this, and particularly this evening as we're going to see uh, Christ as the clear fulfillment of these promises made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So again, we're looking at the kingly office, the office of the, Christ holds three particular offices. He is prophet, he is priest, and he is king. And we've already looked at how he is the prophet given by God. We've already looked at how he is the only high priest. And now we're looking at how he fulfills this kingly office. And again, we, we're seeing, as the Scriptures do, provide progressive revelation. God revealed that, that Christ would, um, would bring about and have dominion over sin, particularly over the serpent, by crushing the head of the serpent, even as the serpent would bruise his heel. Uh, we saw that, that that kingly line would be restored and brought about through Noah's descendants, and then it would be brought about through Abraham's descendants, that this king would come from their lineage. And then we're seeing in particular how Israel rebelled against the Lord, how they sought a king of their own, a king of their desire, how that was disastrous for them, how Saul was a man who didn't follow the Lord. And then we see that God chose David. And he, what we see there is, is the, the difference in man seeking even God's plan his own way and how that can be disastrous. And then depending upon God as he sets and chooses David, who wasn't the most attractive, wasn't the most, uh, um, most compelling uh, person to be king, but yet God who looks on the heart made the choice while man looks on the outward appearance. And so this Davidic dynasty that David had, uh, that God had, set, had brought about and, and encouraged and, and settled in David, uh, we saw David's obedience and how he patiently waited for God to remove Saul himself rather than David seeking to lead a rebellion. And as David had been a man of, of obedience to the Lord, as he had been a man uh, who sought peace, we're going to look at that in just a second, we see that God chooses to establish that Davidic dynasty by a covenant. And so uh, we're going to be looking here in particular uh, at verse um, 8 of 2 Samuel chapter 7 just to remind us of the promises God has made and then we're going to see their fulfillment in Christ. So 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 8. Again, this is God speaking to Nathan the prophet and he's telling Nathan, he says, Now therefore thus you shall say to my servant David... Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest... 
from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So to quickly review what we looked at last week, we see that David is, has a reign that brings peace. In fact, at the beginning of 2 Samuel chapter 7, we see that the king is living in his house and he had, had been given by God rest from all the surrounding enemies. His faith in the Lord and obedience to his commands brings prosperity and success. And as David depended upon the Lord to bring about these victories, Israel was able to experience a period of peace and rest from their enemies. Now, David, knowing God's promises, and we, we looked at uh, promises that God had made to Israel, saying that in the day that Israel has rest, he will establish a place for his name, that the Lord would establish a place for his name. David, knowing this, says, well, now is the time for, me, for a temple to be built. But God tells David, no, you will not build the temple. You've been a man of violence. He says this in First Chronicle 22 verse 8 and then God rewards David by building a house for David instead of David building a house for God now we we saw as we just read some of the clear teachings or the clear promises that God made to David in this covenant he says that he's going to raise up David's offspring coming from David's lineage and that that offspring that will be established will be established eternally, forever. That God's relationship with this offspring, with David, will be the relationship of that of a father and son. That when David's offspring sin, God will discipline them, but He will not forsake David's offspring, nor will He let His steadfast love depart from them. He will establish David's house, And he will establish that kingdom eternally. And it will be eternally established before God himself. And I think one thing that that we failed to mention last week, if it is established before the Lord, if it's established before God himself, how long does God live? Forever. And so the establishment of David's house before the Lord will continue as long as the Lord exists, which is eternally. And so he speaks then of this eternal throne established forever for David. Now, last week we spent a good amount of time recounting Psalm 89. And we're not going to spend time to go through everything that we looked at there last week. But Psalm 89 uh, is a wonderful passage that speaks of God's promises 
that are tied to his character, that the reason we can be sure that God keeps his promises is because of his faithful nature. He's righteous. He's just. He never goes back on his promises. And so there's a confidence that's brought about to those who trust in the promises of God. And Psalm 89 speaks of that. And then at the end of the psalm, we see this seeming contrast as the psalmist is languishing and looking at the difficulties facing Israel. This was likely written during the time of Solomon's reign. It was likely written um, at a time when Solomon's kingdom was beginning to fade. Solomon had fallen into sin. And the, 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 um, the psalmist cries out there and says, Lord, have you cast us off? And he ends by seeking the blessing of God himself. Blessed be the Lord forever. And so, again, there's just a wonderful uh, picture for us that you know, we all face difficulties. We all wonder if God's promises are going to be true, especially when we're facing those difficulties, especially when our experience in life doesn't seem to match what God has said. And the answer when we come across those times is not to abandon our faith in the Lord. It's not to, not to wring our hands and say, well, I wonder if God is going to fail, but rather to give voice to the Lord for how we're feeling and then to proceed with confidence in Him and faith in Him. And this, this, Psalm 89, again, is a beautiful passage that speaks of those realities. Well, this evening we're going to look at how Christ Himself is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Um, next week we're going to spend some time looking at the failures of the human sons of David. And it begins with his son Solomon. And again, as we, as we mentioned, Psalm 89 seems to indicate that, that there was already concern about the sin that had entered into the kingdom. As we, we're, we're going to look in a few uh, weeks, next week, we'll, we'll see how um, the kingdom splits into a, after a civil war. And there's the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And how the kings of Israel, both kingdoms linking their way back to David, those kings very quickly go into idolatry. They take the entire nation into idolatry. And as a result, the northern kingdom is destroyed, taken captive, and then eventually Judah, the southern kingdom, falls as well. And so there's this, as we come to the end of the Old Testament, there is this sort of wonder, is God going to be true to His promises? I mean, Israel is not a nation Mainly, I mean, yes, they, they finally are able to come back into the kingdom. There's the post-exilic time, and, and we, we see uh, Nehemiah and Ezra. There's the rebuilding of the wall, the, the seeking to rebuild the temple, the finding of the book of the law there, and, and, and there's some restoration of things, but it's not what it was before. And certainly Israel's land is not the expansive country that it was as God had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. And so the Old Testament ends with a question. Will God be true to His promise? Will there be an eternal king, of da- king from David's lineage that will fulfill the promises God has made? God covenanted. He swore by Himself, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 89. So if what he swore does not come true, then it is actually an indication that he is not the true God. That is the nature of his promise. 
And we praise the Lord that we do see and we will see this evening how Christ is the fulfillment of those promises. So we're going to be looking at a number of different passages. You can try to flip around to them. I'll have the text up on the screen as well. Um, But we're going to begin by seeing that that the first thing we see that in the way in which Christ fulfills this Davidic covenant is that we first must establish that he is of the house and lineage of David. He needs to be a descendant of David. Again, the promise is that this will be someone who is an offspring of David. Verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. Well, we know that Jesus is of the house and the lineage of David. We see this in in the Christmas story. Luke chapter 2, verse 4. Joseph goes up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Bethlehem. Why? What's the city of David? Well, why is Joseph going to the city of David? Well, this census that was taking place required people to return to their hometowns, the place from which they grew up. Joseph goes to Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. And Christ, as his firstborn son, would be the heir of that lineage. Now, we know that in one sense, Joseph is a stepfather to Christ. But nonetheless, we see the reality that the the promises and and the lineage, the, the inheritance, falls from Joseph to Christ. And we see this in Matthew chapter 1, as there's a genealogy there in Matthew 1, and it is called the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And notice, he is first son of who? David. And then son of Abraham. This truth is not uh, overlooked by the apostles in their preaching. When we read in the book of Acts and we read the preaching of the apostles, they are primarily preaching to Jewish people. And these Jews that were now living under Roman rule, they didn't have the freedoms that they expected. It certainly seemed like this promise that there would be a king from David's house uh, on the throne is not going to come true. The king that they did have was a, a wretch. Herod was a wretch of a man. Pilate, who was really more powerful than Herod, these Roman heathen rulers had taken over. And so, was it true, does God fulfill His promises? And the apostles come to the Jews and they say, yes! Look in Acts chapter 13, 22 through 23. And when He had removed Him, speaking of Saul, what did God do? Well, He raised up David to be their king, of whom He testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, David, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He, what? Promised. What's remarkable here about the argument that is being made is that He is telling this Jewish group, He's preaching to the Jews and He's telling them, look, Jesus is the Savior, and one of the reasons He is the Savior is because He is the fulfillment of God's promises in the Davidic covenant. He is David's offspring. And He is 
the evidence of the faithfulness of God to His promises. So Christ is clearly of the house and the lineage of David, fulfilling that first promise that I will raise up your offspring after you, one who will come from your own body. Well, one of the other things we see that God says about this offspring that will be brought up from David is that he says in verse 14 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, I will be to him a what? A father. And he shall be to me a son. What, what's, what's amazing to note there is that it's not a comparison. It's not, it's not given as a, as a simile. He will be like, I will be like a father to him and he will be like a son to me. But God is saying explicitly, I will be his father and he will be my son. And we know that Jesus is the true, eternally loved son of God. As Jesus went to John in the wilderness and was baptized of him in the river, as he came up out of that, uh, out of that river, we, John tells us that he sees the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And then he says he hears the voice, a voice from heaven. And what does that voice say? This is my beloved, what? Son, in whom I am well pleased. You have to recognize that Christ is both the Son of David and the Son of God. That only Christ could fulfill in totality this promise made. One who would be David's son and also would be the son of God. Christ is declared to be the son of God by God himself publicly. And John the Baptist bears witness to this voice that is heard from heaven. Jesus is the true, eternally loved son of God. Of God. This inheritance that Jesus deserves by right as David's offspring, this inheritance that Christ deserves by virtue of him being the Son of God, then provides for him a kingdom and a kingly role that will be established how long? Forever. We see this in the promises made to Mary. I mean, here is Mary. I mean, imagine what Mary is facing when the angel comes to her and says that you're going to conceive in your womb. You know, she's like, well, I'm not, I've not known a man. How's this going to be? And, and very soon there's all sorts of scandal. Joseph, seeing what happens, says he's going to put her away privately. But in the angel's pronouncement to Mary, given her this promise that she will conceive a son... Notice what he says. Notice what the angel says. You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father who? David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. As we see in the book of Revelation, 
The seventh angel blows his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You know, this is such a wonderful hope that Christ's throne is established forever. Listen, I don't know about you, but I don't want any human ruler that I've had in my lifetime having their throne established forever. Every single politician we come across is still riddled with sins. Even the best of the best of the politicians fall far short of who Christ is. But the glories of being in Christ, of being being in Him by faith, of being a member of the kingdom, is that Christ's reign never ends. We don't need to seek another ruler. He is our King eternally. And so we'll never have to face the failures of the rulers among men when we have a perfect ruler in Jesus Christ. There's no power that can dethrone him. There's no situation or political intrigue that will take him away from his throne. He reigns eternally. And this is a great hope for his people. Now, one of the things that God says to David in this promise is that when this this offspring of David who comes from his body commits iniquity. Now, if what we're seeing in 2 Samuel is speaking of Christ, how in the world can it also refer to Christ committing iniquity? Because we know that in Christ he was tempted like as we are, yet what makes him different from us? He was without sin. So what's going on here? Well, again, we have to recognize that this is where we need to take a principle of interpretation called the analogy of Scripture. Or, to put it sort of another way, Scripture interprets Scripture. Um, So when we look at the human kings that come from David's line, do they commit iniquity? how, How far down the line do we have to go to find a a offspring of David that commits iniquity. How far? The next one, Solomon. I mean, he he heaps to himself multiple wives, multiple concubines, and that in itself is a violation of God's design for marriage. But even beyond that, these wives take his heart away from the Lord and he yearns for other gods. He listens to his wives and he sets up Um, different uh, high places so that there can be the worship to these foreign gods. Again, I'm getting ahead of myself with what we're going to look at uh, next week, but one of the things we find is that one of those high places is to a god that required child sacrifice. And the implication is that Solomon himself may have offered one of his own children to these gods. So, What's going on here? Because we know that so far, the New Testament has said Jesus is the fulfillment of this Davidic covenant. Yet we see this, this statement of the fulfillment of this coming to the offspring of David when they commit iniquity. And this is where we see oftentimes in prophecy, particularly prophecy regarding 
uh, Christ a, a principle where there is a fulfillment at, at one point, but a greater fulfillment found in Christ Jesus. So, for instance, another example of this is that the prophet, um, I believe it's Hosea, refers to the fact that, that out of Egypt I called my son. Now, we know that Hosea, in writing that, is referring to God calling Israel out of Egypt. And there's actually a, a significance there in, in seeing how Israel becomes a type of Christ. And you say, what is a type of Christ? Well, we'll eventually get there in our theology things when we start those on Sunday evenings. But needless to say, it's that which is a, a physical event or a person that actually shows, a, that points to the greater fulfillment in Christ. And so Hosea makes this statement about, out of Egypt I've called my son. But then we read as Jesus or as Joseph and Mary fled with Jesus to Egypt because of the decree of Herod to kill all the babies in Nazareth. They go to Egypt. And so it says that this is a fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet David. Out of Egypt I have called my son. So you see how prophecy can have a, a, an, a closer to the time that it's given a fulfillment and then a greater fulfillment in Christ. So when it speaks here of when he commits iniquity, the point that God is making is that when your human sons commit iniquity... I'm not, I'll discipline them. I'll discipline them with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men, but I'm not going to remove my steadfast love from them like I did with Saul. Now, why is this important, particularly when we understand the ramifications of Christ being the fulfillment of this? Because if God would remove His steadfast love from the human lineage of David, then he would be violating the promises of the covenant he's now making with David. In other words, God is saying, I'm making this promise, and I know that your human sons will commit iniquity. Notice what he says there. It doesn't say if he commits iniquity, does it? When he commits iniquity. God is omniscient. And in that omniscience, he has foreknowledge of every event that will ever happen. So it doesn't take God anything to look forward and see, yeah, your son Solomon is going to commit iniquity. In fact, as we read through the history of the kings of Israel, what are they doing a lot of? Committing iniquity. And what we see is that God throughout disciplines them but he doesn't remove his steadfast love like he did from Saul. See, Saul's reign was never the reign that God intended. It was Israel's rash decision to set him up as a king. Saul was never to be the one from whom the promised Messiah would come. And so God rejected Saul, rejected his lineage from being king. But David is the one that God had chosen. He is the one whom he revealed would be the one that would come and be the Savior that saves his people from their sins. And so we see that this discipline, but not removal of steadfast love, is important even for the fulfillment of these promises. 
But I'd also like to submit uh, something to you as well regarding particularly the way in which God spoke of how He's going to discipline him. He says, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. And of course, we know that while Christ committed no iniquity, there was no sin found in him, there was no guile found in his mouth. Nonetheless, what did he suffer for? Sin. Not his own sin, but the sins of his people. Christ took upon himself the punishment for sin. There's actually very similar terminology used here. Now, they're not the same Hebrew words, but they are the same concepts that we see in Isaiah 53, verses 5 through 6. Christ was pierced for what? Our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, or with His, as the King James translates it, with His what? Stripes. We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. What is remarkable to see about the steadfast love of God is that he, re- he removes his wrath. He removes the punishment of our sins by placing it Upon Jesus Christ, the Son of David. Every single king from David's lineage commits iniquity. And every single king from David's lineage that finds hope from the punishment for their iniquity finds it in the fact that God punished Christ on their behalf. And we today, who are members of this kingdom by faith, we have Christ who has taken our iniquities upon Himself. As Peter says, He Himself bore not His own sins, but whose sins? Our sins. In his body on the tree. So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds or by his what? Stripes. You have been healed. And so Christ taking the stripes of the sons of men, disciplined with the rod of men, is able to provide a full and sure salvation for those who look to Him in faith. We see also a similarity 
in what God said to David. He says, particularly in verse 8, that thus says the Lord of hosts, this is verse 8 of 2 Samuel chapter 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. The implication there is that David's shepherding role changes from the role of shepherding sheep to shepherding the nation of Israel. And as David was taken from tending sheep to tending God's people, guess who Christ is? The chief shepherd of His people. Ezekiel 37 is remarkable. He speaks of the day that Messiah will come and bring salvation and that there will no longer be a defilement of themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will save them from all the backslidings in which they have sinned and I will cleanse them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. How was this brought about? My servant David shall be king over them. And they shall all have one what? Shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. And as Peter tells us, we were all strain like sheep. As Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every single one of us to our own way. But by the grace of God, we have now returned to Christ, who is the shepherd and overseer of our souls. It's amazing to see, particularly as we looked at the Ezekiel passage, that that Christ is the means of saving Israel from their backsliding. The implication at the end of that passage is that we will walk before the Lord. He will be our God. We will be His people. We will look carefully to keep His word and to obey His statutes. And so as we are, as God's people, called to live a life before Him, as as the call of the Christian life is to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Him, as we are to kill sin, to mortify the flesh, as we are, as we saw today, to be dead to sin and alive to righteousness, presenting ourselves to God as instruments for righteousness. How do we do that? By looking to the chief shepherd. He's the one who guides us and directs us into a life that reflects His righteousness as our king and as our shepherd he guides us into the right path and then finally and perhaps a little bit controversially this evening i'd like us i'd like to also assert that the reign of christ on david's throne has already begun now i will Admit that there are different viewpoints on this, um, and that's okay. We can have some disagreements about certain things, but I think when we look here at Acts chapter 20, or Acts chapter 2, uh, we'll see very clearly 
that Christ is at this moment ruling and reigning on the throne of David. Now, turn with me actually to Acts chapter 2 because there's, there's an extended passage. I'm going to put two of the verses, or three of the verses up on the screen. But I want us to read the passage and look at the argument that Peter is making. Now, Acts chapter 2 comes right after Acts chapter 1, all right? Obvious. What happens in Acts chapter 1? Well, Acts chapter 2 is the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, the ascension, right? So Jesus, Jesus has come. He's finished His work. He, he tells His disciples, reminds them of the commission He's given them. You'll be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. Or in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and under the uttermost parts of the earth. And then he leaves them. Goes up into heaven. And the disciples are sitting there, and, they, they, and it's a glorious thing. I mean, there's gl- the glory of God. The angels are there, and, and, and they're looking up like, ah. Uh, and the angels come and say, what are you doing standing up here looking into heaven? Go to Jerusalem. Do what you are told to do. Christ will send the Holy Spirit to you. And then in Acts chapter 2... What happens? Christ sends the Holy Spirit. And it's, a, it's, it's such a, a visible outpouring of the Holy Spirit that a crowd gathers around. And they see these men speaking in, in tongues that they had never learned before. Human languages that they had never studied. And everyone there, as the, Jerusalem was a center of commerce, there were people from different areas. They all heard these uh, disciples, or the apostles now, speaking in their own dialects. And so they, they wonder, like, what's going on? Are these, are these men drunk? And so Peter comes up and he preaches his sermon at Pentecost. And he goes through and speaks particularly of how... Um, how this is fulfilling what God had promised through the prophet Joel, the pouring out of the Spirit on all flesh. And then he begins in verse 22 of Acts chapter 2, speaking of Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was attested to them by mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And he's describing the miracles that Christ had done in his life. The apostle John makes a clear theological statement in the book of John speaking of seven particular signs and miracles that Jesus did that show that he is the Messiah. And so now we come to Acts chapter 2 verse 29 and Peter begins to draw his conclusion to a close. He says, brothers, so he's talking to Jewish people. I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch who? David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn something to him. What had he sworn? That there would be one, that he would set one of his descendants on the throne. Again, notice what Peter is doing here. He is calling to account the fact that God swore an oath. Do you understand the significance of that statement? God swore an oath. What does, what does Jesus tell us about making oaths? We don't do it lightly. When you make an oath, what do you have to do? Follow through on that oath. 
So God here is making an oath. What is that oath? That he would set one of his descendants on his what? Throne, on David's throne. So when David speaks of this, what is he talking about? He foresaw and spoke about what? The resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades or the realm of the dead, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. We all are witnesses, speaking of the apostles. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, David's Lord, David's King, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstools. And then here we see Peter drive it home. He punches it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. And what is the cause of that certainty? Jesus has raised from the dead. As Christ has raised from the dead, know for certain that God has made him, that being Christ, both, or Jesus of Nazareth, both Lord, sovereign, King, and Christ. And then he drives it home. This Jesus, and what did the crowds in Israel or in Jerusalem do to Jesus just 40 days earlier? Whom you crucified. The Spirit uses this message to cut those that were there to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what? Shall we do? And the implication is that that it clicked for them. We killed our king. Now there's some very significant points to be made here. And I think particularly in verse 36, we can make, I believe we can make a strong case that when Jesus rose to the right hand of the throne of God, he, was sitting on the th- he is sitting on the throne of David today. Now, this does not mean that there isn't going to be a day when that throne comes to earth. And that day will come in the millennial kingdom where Christ will show all the world that he is sitting on the throne of David visibly in Jerusalem. And we look forward to that day. Oh, Lord Jesus, come! Set things right. That will be the day when all the evil rulers of this world will be brought to nothing. And a perfect king will reign on David's throne. But there is a wonderful reality for God's people today as Christ is on the throne and He is both Lord and Savior. That we now live under the kingship of Christ as He sits on that Davidic throne. That God has established this eternal throne forever. And we, as believers in Christ, can enjoy His kingdom now. 
That as we enter into the kingdom, as Peter calls upon the crowds in Jerusalem in verse 38, to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then I love this. He says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself and how many did the lord god call to himself that day two thousand what a i'm sorry three thousand three thousand souls and so christ is today ruling and reigning on that throne What a wonder it is that when we look forward to that day, that when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels will come with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. And before Him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another. And then guess what He's doing? He's acting as a what? A shepherd. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So, Jesus is the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Now, what does that mean for us? What, what are the blessings of this Davidic covenant that we have in Christ? You're going to have to come back next week <laughs> to find out uh, as we're out of time. Um, isn't it a joy to know that Christ is our king that he rules and reigns over all creation he is the sovereign of the universe but he is more particularly the king of his people what joy this gives us what hope as we who are in christ by faith live under the rule of a perfect king let's pray father Lord, we thank you for such a blessing that we have in Christ. Lord, we thank you that Jesus is on the throne of David. And Lord, as we are able to, as your people, particularly as your people come together and gather and fellowship and worship you, Lord, we're able to experience just a a small taste of what it means to be in your kingdom perfectly, Father. We are fallen We fail, Lord. But Father, you and your grace, sending your spirit to your people through the edification of the saints as we speak to each other and minister grace in singing and encouragement, Father. Lord, as we do these things, Lord, we're able to experience just a taste of what that kingdom is like. And Father, as we get a glimpse of the heavenly kingdom as we come as your church, Lord, it makes us yearn for your return. Lord, come, Father. Send your Son. Lord, we languish in this world of sin. And yet, Father, we recognize that you delay out of mercy. For you have many more of your people to save. So, Father, as as we recognize that Christ is the true King, may we not...
put our trust in earthly rulers. May we also be bold about proclaiming the hope of Christ to the world around us so that they may leave behind the kingdom of darkness and be transferred by your grace into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Thank you for King Jesus, Lord. May we seek to live in submission to Him. We pray this in Christ's precious name, pleading His blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.